Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. In this series, we're bringing together leading thinkers to ask one of life's most important, substantial questions. What does it mean to live wisely and well? We'll get expert insight on neurobiology, mortality, loneliness, the meaning of an intellectual life, and more. In this episode, we'll talk with Ryan Streeter and Francie Broghammer about the importance of human connection, both for individuals and for society. Our guests will discuss the modern paradox of being more and more digitally connected, even as we become an ever lonelier generation. What I, what I think is, is a big part of the story, which has not necessarily made it into the media narrative about loneliness over the last few years, is that you have a sort of magic equation of marriage, of, of membership, usually within a religious organization, but can be civic, and then just sufficient time in a community. And when you factor all those things together, even young people who are always the loneliest in a society, their levels of, of loneliness on average are about the same as, as people who are baby boomer age, who are, who are a generation uh, ahead of them. This episode is an edited version of our online conversation from April of 2021. You can find the full video of that conversation on our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder. One of the big questions that we'll engage today pertains to a rather unsettling paradox of our time. The fact that we have never been more virtually connected, but we are deeply, painfully, even lethally lonely. Some studies indicate that fully half of us report feeling lonely, rejected, and isolated, and that each succeeding generation reports being lonelier than the one before. Of course, loneliness by this definition is not merely a matter of solitary time or being alone. You know, as often solitude can actually be deeply enriching spiritually, emotionally, even relationally. It instead refers to the pain of being excluded, overlooked, disregarded, diminished, and alienated as a result. This pain is both destructive and disintegrating in individual lives, but also in civic life. Even before the onset of this isolating pandemic, loneliness and its attendant hardships contributed to a decline in life expectancy, a surge in suicides, more than a doubling of overdoses, and a spike in deaths of despair. Which leads us to ask, why is it in the midst of relative peace and prosperity, we are increasingly alienated, lonely, and depressed. Why has our loneliness grown along with opportunities for virtual connection? And how can we strengthen the ties that both ground us and grow us, that root us to a place and broaden our world? These are obviously big questions and there's no easy answers. But both of our guests today have wrestled with these questions, both with vigor, but from different vantage points. As a doctor and medical researcher who cares for those afflicted with loneliness, as well as uh, studies the phenomenon, and as a scholar and policy wonk who has studied the impact of loneliness on the body politic. And so it's a real pleasure to introduce our guest today, Ryan Streeter and Francie Broghammer. Ryan is the Director of Domestic Policies at the American Enterprise Institute, where he oversees research in technology, education, social capital formation, housing, poverty, and public opinion. He previously served as the Executive Director of the Center of Politics and Governance at UT Austin, as the Deputy Chief of Staff for then-Governor Mike Pence, and as Special Assistant for Domestic Policy to President George W. Bush. 
He's also the author of five books, including Transforming Charity, Religion and the Public Sphere in the Public Sphere in the 21st Century, and The Soul of Civil Society, as well as writing widely for a variety of publications, including the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, National Review, and many others. Joining him is Francie Broadhammer. Francie is a doctor and the chief psychiatry residence at the University of California, Irvine, where her academic interests encompass medical ethics, education, spirituality, and human flourishing. And her research focuses on suicide and social isolation. She also serves as a current Leonine Fellow, an American Psychi Psychiatric Association Leadership Fellow, a member of UC Irvine Medical's Ethics Committee, and a board member for Pepperdine University's American Project. Ryan and Francie, welcome. Great to see you. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Glad so to be here. Really glad to have you here. So we're just going to jump right in. And Francie, given that your research is on loneliness and you uh, do a lot of clinical treatment of those who suffer with it, I want to start with you and simply ask you, what is going on? Why has there been such a rise of loneliness in the last few years? And what you see as some of the contributing factors? Good question, broad question. And I'm gonna back it up just a little bit and, and specify it's not just the last couple of years. This is something we've actually seen going on for the last couple, um, like 20 years or so, I would say really a sharp increase. And before we can answer some of those questions, I think it's really important we understand what loneliness is and what it is not. Loneliness is not in and of itself social isolation, which many of us have experienced more than we ever thought we would over the last year, right? <clears throat> Social isolation is an objective state. There are not people around you. But loneliness is the subjective feeling of being alone. You can feel alone in a crowded room, right? And so this is important that we highlight because what happens when you start feeling that way is that not far from there is this inability to find meaning in your life and daily actions. Because if you don't feel related to people around you, we are relational beings, and so you don't understand how you fit into the bigger picture at play. And so once you start to, to lack that meaning in your life, very quickly your environment around you is perceived as toxic. And we see that there's worse health outcomes, both physically and mentally. And very quickly you can go from there to a state of what we, what we call despair, essentially, which is suffering in the absence of meaning. And that can lead to things such as depression, suicide, drug overdoses. And so what is contributing to this is one of the things that, that you had asked. And it's many fold. If there was a simple solution, I don't think we need to have an hour talking about this today. And I promise you an hour won't even scratch the surface. But in my research and my clinical work, I've come to appreciate that there's changes happening in every fiber of American life. Time we're spending at the dinner table with our kids, how much time our kids are spending with one another as they're growing up and going through their adolescence how much time we're spending in church or how much people even start to affiliate with a specific religion. Changes in employment patterns, right? Going maybe more towards a gig economy or people seeing more turnover in the work that they're doing, relating with people in the workplace less. For every single person, these factors are gonna factor in differently. What impacts your 13-year-old girl feeling alone is gonna be very different from what impacts the 45-year-old gentleman who feels alone. But the reality is, is it's not a one hit wonder, right? <laughs> it's not like, oh, things just changed at school and I feel lonely. It's things are different at church and things are different at home and things are different at school and things are different at work. And all of those things factor in to different degrees for different people. 
Thanks, Francie. Ryan, I'd love for you to jump in because I know one of your research uh, areas of focus has been social capital formation. And just to, to get your thoughts on what has been happening over the last couple of decades and how it might uh, impact our perceived loneliness or isolation now. Yeah, and to build on um, what Francie was just saying, the, the experience of loneliness uh, of feeling disconnected from others or having social needs that your current relational environment is not meeting is kind of where loneliness comes from. It's something that, despite its increase recently, as you talked about earlier, is something that every generation has sort of struggled with. David Slater's Pursuit of Loneliness in 1971 or David Reisman wrote uh, The Lonely Crowd in 1951. Both of them attributed the dislocation of modern life, the enemy, the social atomization driven by large scale changes in our economy and, and social structures to be behind this kind of the sense that people have of being dislodged from a, a place of security into one of, of instability, which also can produce a kind of loneliness. So to put it in historical context, this is a perennial question that we wrestle with. What I think has been happening over the last uh, couple of decades in American life and even beyond that as you indicated, Cherie, is a, a social capital sort of phenomenon and a, a sort of decline in a number of our communities around the country, just in the, the health and sort of substance of, of personal relationships at the local level that people experience when they're not at work and they're not at home, when they're out and about and they're in their communities, whether that's in a formal structure like a church or just at a corner cafe where they meet their friends regularly. There've been a number of studies. Uh, we, we all know Bob Putnam's work from a, a couple of decades ago. There's been a lot of work since that time showing the shifting nature of civic engagement in America and social capital. And so what we've endeavored in our survey work at AEI to, to do is to not just invent new questions, but to recover some of these old, these old survey questions to do large national surveys and combine them to ask the battery of questions that form uh, a loneliness index like the US, UCLA loneliness index and and some of the same questions that someone like Bob Putnam asked years ago on formal volunteering, civic membership, and then some more recent questions on just social relationships, more informal forms of social capital. We mash all those things together and we find perhaps unsurprisingly, but I think quite convincingly, that when people are embedded in networks of real relationships, both formal and informal, and particularly when those are rooted in a house of faith and in, an, in, in a family, you see really low levels of attendant loneliness there. And so what, what I think is, is a big part of the story, which has not necessarily made it into the media narrative about loneliness over the last few years, is that you have a sort of magic equation of marriage, of, of membership, usually within a religious organization, but can be civic, and then just sufficient time in a community. And when you factor all those things together, even young people who are always the loneliest in a society, uh, we're always lonely when we leave home and venture out on our own because we don't really know anybody. We're new at a community. We just took a job somewhere. It, it's not uncommon for young people to be lonely. They're always the loneliest ones. But when, but when you look at relatively young people who are members, who are married, who've been in a place for at least three years, their levels of, of loneliness on average are about the same as, as people who are baby boomer age, who are, who are a generation uh, ahead of them. And so I think this body of work that we've seen kind of emerging over the last couple of decades on the changing nature of social capital in America is very much related to this phenomenon of real and perceived loneliness in America. Thanks, Brian. You, you mentioned Bob Putnam and his work Bowling Alone, where he found that actually membership, volunteerism, all these different sort of metrics of civic engagement were declining. But one of the uh, sort of the counters to that at the time 
uh, by several scholars was like, oh, there's probably going to be new ways that we're going to engage uh, in a civic sense and a relational sense. And, and one of those, those ways that was proposed is there's going to be so many new and rich forms uh, of virtual engagement, you know, even things like what we're, we're doing right now. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to ask really both of you about, but starting with, with you, Francie, is in some ways, it seems like virtual engagement has not panned out to be quite what we hoped in terms of forging relationships and staving off senses of alienation uh, and loneliness. And in particular, I wanted you to comment on a study I had read recently, you probably know far more about it than I do, that looked at teenage girls and depression. And it found that basically between 2010, which is right around the time that um, more people had uh, smartphones than not in America, between 2010 and 2015, depression for teenage girls grew 50%. You know, within a five-year period, that there was something, and that not only that, but that the more time people spent on social media, the more likely they were to report feeling lonely or alienated or depressed. So what is it? Um, why has our social media failed to be that new form of uh, kind of rich social capital and relational um, incubation? And why is it that we are more lonely when we seem to be more connected. Good question. And it's, again, very nuanced because it depends on how we use technology as a means of engagement, right? It's one thing to spend three hours alone in your bed scrolling through saying, oh, I don't quite look like that or I can't match this achievement. It's a very different thing to get together with a small group of maybe like-minded people, have a very thorough in-depth conversation, catch up on people's lives. How are your kids doing, right? So it's not just social media all bad because it does depend on how we use it and how often we use it and in which ways we're using it. There's actually a fair amount of research showing that it's kind of a baby bear's porridge um, type of a phenomenon. If you can use kind of the right amount, the right frequency, you find that it actually can be supplementary and helpful as a means of helping especially virtual employees feel more connected. But if it's being used too much or too little or not quite in the right way, we're not able to achieve that same end. So, but with regards to teenage girls in particular, because this is a topic that always comes up, um, it's one of the groups that we've seen the highest spike in suicide rate in over the last 10 to 20 years here. And everyone goes, oh, it must be social media, right? What, what about social media? And the thing we have to realize, especially with young girls, because we don't quite see it the same in young boys in the same way, is young women tend to internalize right? When they, when they are experiencing distress, which is why following a divorce, uh, a young girl might keep to herself, spend less time with her friends, spend more time in her bedroom, things like that. Whereas a young boy might be more likely to act out at school, get in trouble for getting in fights, things like that. So young girls are more likely to internalize. And what are they internalizing? They're internalizing, maybe you're not good enough, right? Maybe you can't match up when it comes to looking this way or this specific type of a, a accomplishment. A story comes to mind of a patient I saw last year in our emergency room, actually. She was 13 years old and she was coming in with suicidal ideation. And I spent some time getting to know her and she, you know, what's contributing? Where did this come from? And she said, Dr. Broghammer, I've never had these thoughts before in my life, but I, I recently switched to a new school and a couple people there started an Instagram that was titled, Becky should kill herself. And within a number of hours, really, it had hundreds and hundreds of followers. And she's like, if all of these people feel this way, maybe it's something I should be considering. What did I do that was wrong, right? And we have to realize that it's this 
being an adolescent is complex to begin with. And then we're factoring in the distance that comes from social media engagement, right? You can be mean to someone and not have to directly deal with the look on their face and the feeling that invokes within you. And that allows people to interact in a way that's less human than they did before, right? And this is one thing when it happens to a 29 or a 35 year old who has a fully formed prefrontal cortex and can kind of navigate all the nuances of this. It's a very, very different thing when it happens to a 13 or 14 year old girl who is more likely to internalize, doesn't have that prefrontal cortex and is really going through this, this period of maturation. So yes, this, the statistic you cited is absolutely correct. There is a direct correlation between, especially for adolescents, time spent on social media and adverse mental health outcomes. There was recently um, the 2020 Cigna study that was released showed that heavy social media users, which was defined as two hours or more on social media per day, 74% of them met criteria for being lonely. Just a year prior to that, um, it had been remarkably lower where there wasn't really a significant difference between light users and heavy users. And by the, the study actually was conducted in 2019, released in 2020. By the time it was released in 2020, there was actually a 20 percentage point difference between heavy social media users being lonely, it was about 74%, and light social media users being lonely, which came in at about 54%. So very, very direct correlation there. Wow. Ryan, what are you seeing in terms of social capital formation of, of, regarding the use of, of social media? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's, like Francie said, it's not the median itself that's the, the problem. It, it certainly enables uh, some of the worst of us uh, and, and can bring out, uh, can, can put us in a situation where we're not engaged in meaningful relationships over here because we're spending an, an inordinate amount of time on, on social media. But the, the median itself is, the medium itself is not necessarily the problem. And we all grew up with our mothers telling us not to get in strangers' cars. And then when the internet was invented, we were told not to meet people in person that we met on the internet. But then we started using the internet to meet strangers and get in their cars. Um, and we all do that fairly safely and, and, and it's, it's, it's not a problem. Likewise, when people are, are using social media, a lot of times they're using it to catch up with family and friends. And, and as a father with a, a, a daughter overseas and, and a son in school is overseas, I'm thankful for it. It helps us to stay connected in ways that weren't even possible 10, 10 and 20 years ago. I think what's important to, dis to distinguish here is that it's really what you bring with you into your social media life that, that makes all the, all the difference. And young people just haven't had enough time to develop those networks and relationships over time that provide a certain kind of purpose in their lives. Often they haven't. And when they spend a lot of time on social media, this is, this is the problem that we, that we, the kind of problems Francie was talking about is what we see. What I'd like to, to pivot to just a little bit in this is the, the kind of the role of politics and political ideology and the more performative of our politics becomes and that that role in lonely adults lives i mean once we we move into adulthood a significant percentage of people use their digital media to consume either politics itself or the ideological sort of content of the things that their tribe is, is kind of into and one of the things that really jumped out in our survey research which we didn't go looking for but was was especially interesting was that when we, when we ask those traditional membership questions like Bob Putnam all taught us to, to look at, you know, do, you, do you volunteer at a charity? Are you a member of a veterans club or a sports group or a church? And, and you, look at, you, you look at those membership rates over against people's lonely, loneliness scores, as you would expect, you find that people that are engaged with others in their community in formal ways, and then we look at the informal too, like how many times do you talk with your friends a week? How, many, how often do you get together with people? Unsurprisingly, 
people who are involved in their communities are less lonely than the national average. Um, there's one exception, and that is the people whose only form of civic engagement is politics. So, so people who say that they, they only volunteer in political activities, and then we ask a whole bunch of questions about that. Do you, have, do, you, do you display campaign literature? Have you tried to get people to vote? Do you, do you go around telling people who to vote for? Do you, do you have bumper stickers, these sorts of things? Do you give money to candidates? The, the people who um, outperform everyone else in that category are among the loneliest people in the country. Now, I don't know if our politics is just hollowing out our souls or it's just attracting lonely people these days. I'm not exactly sure what's going, going on. It's some combination probably of both, but it jumps out in a really, really noticeable way. And so when you look at, at young adults whose only outlet is um, political activity when it comes to their, their volunteer activities, they're about seven times more likely to say they're, they're often lonely than, than young adults whose main engagement is at their church or at a local charity or some other type of civic organization locally. So that there's something about the humanity of being involved in the lives of others in physical ways, in ways that unite you in a purpose, just like you experience when you're involved together in some kind of club or at church that really has a, a profound effect on us. Much of our political engagement today is sort of disembodied. We spend a lot of time liking, retweeting, organizing through these media. And it's, it's something that you express less in the way that you would in a, in a true community sort of context. That's probably what's going on here. We don't have a good way of measuring which types of political engagement is sort of in person and, and, and what isn't. But it's very clear that this aspect of our lives right now is having a really kind of deleterious effect on our overall spiritual, moral, and emotional well-being. And it expresses itself in this loneliness factor. So I think, I think there's, there's something, something to the kind of uh, relationship between our digital lives and our political ideologies, which is producing something that's new, something that didn't really exist a generation ago. And so we're trying to understand it now uh, really for the first time. Uh, thanks, Ryan. I'm so glad you brought that up. And there's so much to ask there because it really is remarkable that um, political involvement of all the measures of civic engagement would be the one that's not positively correlated with reduced loneliness, sort of richer friendships and relationality. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is, you know, another thing, a trend we've seen over the last few years is that in many ways, our political identities are waxing and other forms of self-identification are actually waning in some ways that uh, we're becoming more political creatures and that actually our political identities are um, sort of eclipsing in importance uh, some of our others, at least according to survey data. And so I wanted to ask you what, what impact you see that sort of playing out, you know, and what the implications of that uh, of that are for the future, and then relatedly, I kind of wanted to ask you about something that uh, your friend and colleague Arthur Brooks said when he had he had interviewed with us, where he talked about uh, sort of the the increasing juxtaposition of political involvement, you know, in in a form of contempt that essentially what is kind of binding our political tribes is less a shared sense of love and common purpose and more a shared sense of antipathy for others. Is there something about bonds of antipathy that are inherently far less conducive to friendship and relationship uh, than bonds of shared affection or purpose? Mm. Yeah, great, great question. There's a lot in there, there as well. I mean, you think you think about 
just the the difference between being in an automobile and walking down the sidewalk, right? I mean, we all say and do things, or I, I do, you probably don't, Sheree, but you know, when I'm behind the wheel of a car that I would never say to someone who cut me off by walking out of a store in front of me onto the sidewalk, right? You, you add one layer of impersonality between you and another person and you behave, you behave a bit differently. And what our political lives have sort of turned into through the intermediation of, of digital technology is a kind of a performative environment where we, we, we yell the loudest to people who already kind of agree with us. And it makes it very easy to kind of turn your opponent into another, into, into someone who's just, they're not a part of your tribe. And that's really the only way I think you can explain the rise in animosity in our, in our political lives in America. It, it's, it's intertwined entirely with this, this ability to live kind of in our, in our digital enclaves. Because the, the, the difference is now, between now and in the 1970s, when you ask people those, those questions like you and others have asked over time about whether it would be a problem if one of your kids came home dating someone who was of a different political party. I mean, it's, it's gotten so divided now in ways that it wasn't back then. It, it really is hard to explain outside of, of, of this particular phenomenon. What I would say is, you know, going back over many, many years, I mean, George Orwell wrote about this. You can find this all the way back to the like Scottish Enlightenment writers in the 1700s. There's something about ideology in our politics that really, really gets people energized. It's a lot easier to turn people out for a march on the mall in Washington over perceived injustices, climate change, what have you, than it is to turn out people in front of city hall to fix the potholes in their, in their city. There, there's something just much more elevating about a moral crusade that you wanna be a part of. And, and we've now found ways to keep the, the moral crusade happening 24 seven in our lives. What I would say is part of the reason my colleagues and I at AEI decided to, to launch some of these large national surveys is we had a hunch that there's more going on in people's lives than just politics, despite the fact that we get most animated about what's happening within our ideological perspective of the world. We're still parents, we're still kids, we're still members of church, we're still coaches at, at, our, at our kids' sports clubs and stuff like that. And we wanted to understand kind of what's actually going on at the community level. And I think that's where... The, the hope for us is. I don't exactly know how to remedy the, the political problem. Arthur wrote a book about it. We should probably just all go back and read Arthur's, Arthur's book that you mentioned. And he writes about this a lot. But trying to change that dynamic in our, in our politics, which as my, my colleague Yuval Levin has written, is, is we've turned our institutions into performative platforms, trying to reverse that so that they become these places again through which we exercise our duties and through which our character and judgment is shaped. That's a huge task. But one place that we, we can start, for those of us who, who care to at least begin at the local level, is to look at what else is going on. Because what we found is that, you know, there, there are very real community dynamics in this country which are facilitated um, by the kinds of communities in which we live, the numbers of organizations in which you can be involved, even the way communities are designed that help people bump into one, one another, that is really where these animosities fall away. So to that part of your, your question, I mean, when, when people are side by side, even if their politics would drive them apart, if they were talking to each other on Twitter, they'd be at each other's throats. They're now standing on the, the sideline of their, um, their kids' soccer game, talking about whether the new math curriculum that Ms. Johnson just introduced is better than the old one and what to do about the fact that neither of them is happy and their kids aren't learning. Um, that's where most of our lives happen. We need to talk about it more. We need to cover it more. We need to write about it more. And we need to probably encourage, especially younger people, to be involved there more. Um, 
that's easier to say than than to do. But I think that's clearly going to have to be part of the the solution to this overall crisis of isolation and atomization that we're facing. That's great. I want to push into what we can do just a little bit more. And Francie, as you very, as you said quite rightly, we have barely sort of scratched the surface of this. But you know, we are about to enter sort of a period of reset. At this point, I think it's nearly twenty percent of Americans are are vaccinated. You know, over the next few months, we will probably start gradually getting out more, returning to work, returning to socializing. And in some ways, we have an opportunity to sort of rethink uh, certainly some of our personal habits, uh, but also some of our organizational processes, procedures, and methods, even some of our structural ones. And so I'd really love to hear from both of you. We'll start with you, Francie, about uh, what we can do individually, uh, but also institutionally, even structurally, and I want to particularly ask um, about the church as well, and that you know the church has always been sort of the trellis on which the vine of community grows, not because it's trying to be a community activist, but because you know, since our, our our mission is to love God, love others, it's intense and intensely and intrinsically relational. So individually, institutionally, you know, in terms of our ecclesiology, what what should we do? What should we be thinking about? as we sort of re-enter uh, a new period. I'm so glad we're talking about this because we have an opportunity that when I started doing this research a number of years ago, I never anticipated we would have this great reset, if you will. Um, and I'm gonna piggyback a little bit off what Ryan just said. And you mentioned that our identities have kind of been dwindled down more or less to the political for many people, that, that identity taking the forefront. And I just have to give a quick nod to Tocqueville here. He, he put it so aptly so many years before his time, very prophetic, but in saying that politics, I'll quote it directly, in politics, shared hatreds are almost always the basis of friendship, right? And what I know from studying human behavior, if, it, if it's this kind of negative place or pessimistic place that we're coming from as a shared foundation, that is a dangerous place to be. So the most important thing to highlight here is where do we go from here? We got to broaden up our identities again, right? We are not just a Democrat or a Republican. We are Cindy's neighbor. We are Becky's mom. We are our mother's daughter, our daughter's father, whatever it may be, right? Our identities are tenfold, not onefold or twofold. And we can't let any one of them take priority. What we've seen a lot over the past several years is the rise of the political identity. What we have also seen, especially pre-COVID, is that the employer or the employed identity was taking the forefront, right? Oh, I do this for work. How often do you meet someone? And the first question they say is, what do you do? <laughs> right? So we can kind of figure out where people fit. And what we've seen during COVID is people had a big sigh of relief early on when they said, oh my gosh, work was infiltrating the home, but home had not infiltrated work in an equivalent way. And there was something very humanizing about seeing your CEO's child crawl across their lap in the middle of a company-wide meeting, right? And so we need to recognize that our steps moving forward are not just, okay, what policy can we have in place here or there, but our call both on an individual and a broader level are to recognize we are multifaceted beings, right? And that means, and I'll, I'll quote a really great statistic here. It's one of my favorites because I think it, it highlights a point. Your risk of suicide is directly correlates with how well you know your neighbor two doors down. And it's not that that neighbor themselves will potentially save your life if you overdosed on medication, 
but it says something about how invested and ingrained you are in the community around you. So yeah, it's volunteering in your kid's school. It's spending time ushering and helping people park at church. It's instead of just the political hobbyism and the, the quick Twitter post, it's maybe getting out and going to your local meeting um, to talk about the new city ordinances, et cetera, right? We are talking not necessarily about politics, but about association and local engagement. And that is what we are all called to do. And that starts on a very, very individual level. I would argue as small, quote unquote, as spending more time at the dinner table with your kids, asking them about their day. That is the first and the most important school that we have in our country, right? On a broader level, where do we go with our organizations from here? We're seeing data coming out that most people, when they're saying, okay, when I transition back to work, what is important to me? Well, I don't like being 100% isolated, right? <laughs> being home and only having technology as a means of communication isn't ideal, but there's something about the flexibility that I have that allows me to drop the kids off at soccer or attend a webinar in the middle of the day and catch up later if I need to. That's very freeing and allows me to feel more dynamic and multifaceted as an individual. And so we're seeing a strong preference arise for flex scheduling, right? Giving people this freedom to use different parts of their identity in different ways throughout the day. And I think that that's something, if we use that as a key concept, recognizing that we're not just employees 40 hours a week, 60 hours a week, 80 hours a week, but we're, we also hold these other identities. And how can we protect space for those that will, not that will keep us on the right path as we make decisions about how to best move forward as we reopen? That's great. Ryan? Well, now that Francie mentioned de Tocqueville, I can't not pile on there. And, um, you know, I would just add that, you know, one of the things that's interesting when you go back and read him was his observation that Americans, when he was walking around in the 1830s, were individualistic and materialistic. He was concerned about this aspect of what he was seeing in America. They said that, you know, Americans, they'll build a house and won't even get the roof on it before they sell it. They're always eager for gain. They, 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 they're pushing themselves forward. They're materialistic. They, they believe in the individual. And in many ways, his whole description of the civic life of America was, was his way of showing that this is a really important way to counter that or channel it. Or it's not that individualism is bad. It's that when you live within a real community, it gets channeled in the right ways. The energies of productivity are, are helpful rather than destructive. And of course, he observed that religion in America was a key part of that. Um, and so we're fond of quoting him because he helps us understand what the fundamentals of a, a really healthy public square are. And in his case, in the New England towns, those were real places with an actual church and in other stores and shops and places where people met together and solved problems. And so to get to your, your question, Cherie, about the church, I think we're at a point in the United States where religious leaders across the country should really be asking this fundamental question again, about what the church's responsibility is to the public square, kind of its own public theology of, of, of in, involvement again. We've gone through times in our, in our civic life together in this country, not just in the last couple of decades, but actually the last couple of centuries, where from time to time, religious leaders get together and they try to answer that question. And I think we're at a point where we really need to do that. What, what does it actually mean to, for, for a church to own some piece of the public square where they are rather than becoming vehicles to try to own the political opposition, which unfortunately has been happening, I think, all too often. I mean, it's just been startling in our own survey research, as well as that of, of others, to see that right now anyway, you know, when it comes to 
conspiracy theories in American public life. White evangelical Republicans right now are the most conspiratorial body in this country, however you want to cut the, the way they respond to, to questions. And, and I'm not suggesting that pastors all across the country from the pulpit are, are communicating these things, but it has become our, our political ideologies, our political paranoias, our political anxieties have been so intertwined and interwoven with our ecclesiastical relationships that they've been very hard for people to disentangle. And, and, I, and I think it, it's, if really our religious leaders aren't asking a question about what does it mean for the church to be salt and light in the public square these days in a way that's not just political, but is in a way that's much more true to what our community actually needs and consists of. If we're not doing that, then I think the forces of kind of political energy are just going to keep pulling the church in, in this direction, which I don't think has been healthy for American public life. So, so you know, block by block, city by city across the country, a, a renewed interest in this discussion of what the public square means for church leaders and congregants is, I think, really, really important right now. That's great. I want to give Ryan and Francie the last word. Francie? I think what we've been pointing to for the last hour, but maybe not explicitly said, is that it's not just the importance of being in community and associating with one another, but it's taking that one step further and finding the meaning that comes from that. And so I actually want to share with you a quote from Viktor Frankl that I think summarizes this far better than I could myself. A man who becomes conscious of the responsibility he bears toward a human being who affectionately waits for him or to an unfinished work will never be able to throw away his life. He knows the why for his existence and will be able to bear almost any how. Thanks. And Ryan. Yeah, I would say just as we are spiritual and physical beings. I think it's important for us to ask the question, when we're not at home doing what we do at home and when we're not at work doing what we do at work, when we're out and about, are we in the physical community that brings out the best in us? And in our associational life, are we in the relationships that bring out the best in us spiritually? And if we can answer both of those questions, yes, then not only will you not be lonely, you will help those people that you're in relationship with not only not be lonely too, but also have a sense of belonging and, and hopefully also purpose. So I think it's really important to think about the actual physical communities in which we spend our time and how we spend that time and to do an assessment of the associational engagement that we're involved with, with an eye to what it's doing to us morally, emotionally, and spiritually. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Francie. Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on living wisely and well. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos of our past events.